there stood Ms. P, once again escaped from his farm. Patrick shook his head and hurried over to grab the wayward horse's reins. Good day, Mr. Poindexter. Here she is again, Patrick exclaimed. I'm sorry about this, Mr. Poindexter. I'll stop feeding her apples if that will help. Jack crossed his arms and cocked his head to the side. I'm afraid that won't do, Patrick. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. Today we're bringing you Chapter 36 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Sweet on Ms. P., and let's face it, everybody is. Everybody is what? Everybody is sweet on Ms. P, so I... Oh, oui, je comprends. That was just a, an expression. Indeed, sweet on Ms. P is not to be taken literally, for it's not as if anyone is literally, for example, pouring sugar on Ms. P. Aye, or honey, or maple syrup, or... Uh, what's that dark, sticky stuff that some cookies be made of? I believe you are referring to molasses? Aye, molasses. That's what I... But before this episode gets completely sticky sweet, please say hello to three epic animals who apparently don't need any introduction, and yet it is still considered proper to do so, old chap. Well, it's also proper to wait to speak until you have been properly introduced. Oui, monsieur. Touché. So, are you going to introduce us or what? Indeed, old boy. Clock's ticking. We're not getting any younger, you know. <sighs> Here they are, Max, Liz, and Nigel. <sighs> Well, thanks for putting your heart into it, then. We oui, that was so touching. Right. <laughs> Don't we all feel special? Yeah, well, you're going to feel special in a few moments, because you're all receiving gifts today. Really? What is the occasion? There's no occasion. Can't I just get you a gift? Aye. So, what's the catch? Oh, come on. Why does there have to be a catch? Well, announce it, chap. It's just <laughs> a bit out of character for you to uh, uh, pour out resources for frivolous expenditures. Uh, oui, monsieur. You are known for your uh, frugality, your uh, thriftiness, your, uh, your, uh... You're a cheapskate. Max! No, no, it's, it's okay. I admit I keep a pretty tight rein on the old pocketbook. For as the key in our book, The Voice, the Revolution, and the Key, refers to, i.e., Benjamin Franklin... It was Ben who wisely once said, a penny saved is a penny earned. Aye, and he said it like 250 years ago, right? We oui, and not allowing for inflation or fluctuating supply and demand. And this was back when a penny could actually be used to purchase something useful. Fine, okay, so to your point, these gifts didn't cost me a penny. Now that's a shocker. I am speechless. Didn't see that coming. For they were sent to you, not by me, but courtesy of... Ms. P. <laughs> Ms. P. Oh, goody. Ah, oh, très bien. Well, now that takes the biscuit. I say, uh, what pray tell has the old girl sent us? Well, we'll get to that in just a bit. First, we need to find out why Patrick Henry is sweet on Ms. P. Chapter 36. Sweet on Ms. P. Hanover, Winter 1760. 
Patrick sat with his three law books sprawled out on the table in Hanover Tavern, twirling his wig that sat atop his head as he read. His family had long since gone to bed, and he took advantage of the peace and quiet to study. A few solitary candles were lit around him, giving the tavern a tranquil, almost romantic feel, which was a far cry from the daytime atmosphere of this lively place. His father had loaned him Digest of the Virginia Acts, dealing specifically with Virginia law, and he had the other two books Mr. Gilliman had sent him. The most challenging book, of course, was Coke Upon Littleton, laid out in three columns, Complex Law in French-Latin, the English translation, and then a lengthy commentary on the first two columns. It made Patrick's brain hurt. Coke's advice to the reader was that one should read, No more at any one time than he is able with a delight to bear away, and after to meditate thereon, which is the life of reading. With a delight to bear away? Patrick repeated before he blew a raspberry. This was difficult, complex material. Studying law would not be easy. He looked up and saw Liz sitting there on the table next to the candle. The soft glow of the light cast a silky sheen on her black fur, and her eyes caught the light as she stared at him, her tail curled around her legs. He smiled, scratched her under the chin, and pushed Coke aside while he reached for his book by Duncombe. "'Liz, would you like to study with me?' I'm sure you often need to reference the law in your day-to-day -day activities prosecuting mice. I'll read aloud for both of us. <laughs> he chuckled and opened the book to the introduction and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Without victory at the trial, to what purpose is the science of the law? Patrick began. He paused and looked up at Liz. I like this author already. That is why I chose this book for you, no? Liz meowed. Please continue, Mon Henry. If any man be delighted in history, let him read the books of law, which are nothing else but annals and chronicles of things done and acted upon from year to year, in which each case presents you with a petite history. And if variety of matter doth most delight the reader, doubtless the reading of those cases, which differ like men's faces, though like the stars in number, is the most pleasant reading in the world. Patrick paused and looked up at Liz. I love history. It's one of my strengths. He waved his hand over the candle to make it dance. I can study the law as if it were one of my history books, like Plutarch. That will help me. He smiled and picked up the book and began reading again. Liz grinned and curled her tail up and down. Boom! That is exactly what I hoped it would do. March 7, 1760 Liz jumped up to walk along the top of the fence behind which Jack Poindexter kept his horses. A large brown stallion was eagerly chewing on a fence post, drooling and mumbling, Yummy post, yummy post, mm -hmm. yummy post, mm -hmm. yummy post. Uh, pardon, uh, but do you realize this behavior is not beneficial for your teeth? Liz asked him. The horse ignored her continuing to chew and mumble. Don't try to convince Bill otherwise, Miss P. said in a low Virginia drawl, walking up next to him, shaking her head. Telling this stump sucker not to chew this post 
It's like trying to enter a battle of wits with an unarmed man. Liz giggled to herself at hearing the dry wit of Ms. P. She smiled at the beautiful four-year-old horse, jet black except for a tiny white star on her forehead, just beneath the forelock of hair between her large brown eyes. I am actually here to meet you, Miss P. My name is Liz, and I am on a mission for the maker to help Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry? Now there's a kind young man. I always appreciate the apples he gives me. I've been to his store a time or two, shared Miss P. Jack speaks highly of him, although I understand the boy's merchant business isn't worth a plug nickel. But if the maker has you helping him... I assume he is worth a great deal. We, oui, he is a very valuable human, Liz exclaimed happily. He will play an important role in the history of this country, and he is indeed a kind, loving man, always eager to help others. But now, Patrick needs help. He needs a good, strong, reliable horse. Miss P, I have come to ask if you would volunteer to become Patrick Henry's horse. Miss P whipped her tail back and forth and lifted her gaze to stare at the petite black cat sitting on the rail. Why me? Because I know that you have been well trained and cared for by Mr. Poindexter. You are very smart, strong, reliable, and fast, Liz explained. You are treasurely also, no? Very pretty. Well, I'm quite flattered, Liz. I'd be happy to help Patrick, but how do we get Jack to let me go? Miss P. asked. By escaping and showing up at Hanover Tavern, Liz explained, her eyes beaming with good-natured mischief. Uh, several times. How many times? Miss P. asked. Seven, Liz answered with a smile, walking along the fence to examine the gate. Do you have an idea of how you could escape? Miss P. thought for a moment. If you chase two rabbits, both will escape. She replied with a grin, nodding toward Bill, who was still eagerly chewing the fence post. This be some sweet but sticky stuff, Max muttered through clenched teeth, holding the bucket of molasses. Max and Nigel had slipped inside Patrick's store to secretly get the molasses like every other customer of late, on credit. Max had returned to assignment in Hanover, for the time being, to help Liz and Nigel, but stayed out of sight of the humans, along with Nigel. He continually shadowed Patrick, keeping an eye out for any signs of threats, since Nelson needed to remain at Pine Slash. "'Indeed, molasses is the nectar of the colonies,' Nigel answered, riding atop Max's large head. "'And the bread and butter of New England, I might add.' "'Aye, for making the rum,' Max replied. "'Is this French or British molasses?' "'If Liz has a say in what molasses Patrick Henry sells, "'I am sure she would prefer the superior French molasses "'from the French West Indies, as the New Englanders do,' Nigel replied. "'Although I doubt Patrick smuggled his molasses like his northern counterparts.' Why do these lads need to smuggle their molasses? Max asked. Why, because of that dreadful Molasses Act of 1733, old boy, Nigel retorted, straightening his spectacles. We were in England when that happened, lad, Max said. You best remind me. 
"'Very well. I shall explain this sugary, syrupy business,' Nigel offered. "'Right. Molasses is produced on sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean islands, known as the West Indies, and is used for cooking or for making rum. England owns Jamaica and Barbados. Spain owns Santo Domingo. The Dutch own the Netherlands Antilles, and France owns Martinique.' Britain realized they were losing a great deal of money as the American colonies chose to import molasses from these competing islands, which produced better quality molasses at a lower price. The French West Indies also enjoyed trading lumber, cheese, and flour with the New England and Middle colonies and offered the cheapest price, so they had a splendid partnership. Are you with me so far? Aye, answered Max, "'enjoying the sweet bucket handle as he trotted along. "'They had a sweet trade going.' "'Nigel chuckled. <laughs> "'Precisely. "'Yet England's trade was not so sweet. "'So, with the Molasses Act, "'Parliament decided to force the colonies "'to buy British molasses "'by taxing all non-British molasses "'at sixpence per gallon. "'The Act was not meant to raise money, "'but to regulate trade. "'As you can imagine.' This would force the American colonies to either buy the inferior British molasses or destroy New England's rum industry with the high taxes on other molasses. So, what did they do? They decided to smuggle their rum instead from the Frenchies, Max replied. Nigel nodded. And this smuggling led to bribing or intimidating the customs officials in American ports to keep them from collecting the tax and to make them turn a blind eye to the smugglers' sneaky, sugary shenanigans. So, England passed a law that the colonists have ignored? Max asked. And the king hasn't done anything about it? Not in almost thirty years, Nigel replied. But the Molasses Act is set to expire in three years, so we shall see what happens then. The little mouse looked up, and saw Liz sitting on Jack Poindexter's fence post. He waved. We are here, my dear. I do say, I'm looking forward to meeting Ms. P. Max trotted up to Liz and set the bucket of molasses on the ground. Hello, Liz. Bonjour, Max, Liz replied. Uh, merci for bringing the molasses. Oh, glad to do it, Les. It were a sweet job, Max quipped with a wide grin, licking his chops. Miss P. came walking up to them. Well, this must be Max and Nigel. Aye, Liz says ye be one grand horse lass, Max said, flatteringly. Nigel scurried up the fence to where Liz sat and bowed to Miss P. A pleasure to meet you, my dear. I am most grateful for your decision to become Patrick Henry's horse. I look forward to riding on many adventures with you in the coming years. Miss P. lowered her head to get a good look at Nigel. You'll be welcome to stay on this high horse any time. I shall take you up on your kind invitation, Nigel replied with a smile and a tender pat on the horse's muzzle. Seeing as how I have received it right from the horse's mouth, <laughs> he chuckled and wiggled his whiskers. What's the plan for the molasses then? Max asked. Uh, bon. The molasses will be used to encourage Bill the horse to chew on a fence post in the far field, Liz explained, pointing to the distant fence. I will teach him to raise the gate latch in order to reach the other post, 
allowing both him and Miss P to escape. Bill will run to the far fence post covered in molasses, while Miss P runs off to Hanover Tavern. And since Jack Poindexter cannot chase two horses at once, he shall first retrieve the closest horse, Bill, whilst he sees the direction Miss P runs as she wends her way toward the tavern, Nigel added. Oui, Jack will find her with Patrick at the tavern and bring her home. Then we shall repeat this process until Jack is convinced to allow Miss P to stay with my Henry, explained Liz. Miss P looked up at the cloudy sky. There's enough blue sky to knit a cat a pair of breeches, so I think we've got enough time to get this done today before it rains. Liz and Nigel shot glances at one another and giggled. I simply adore her phrases, Nigel. Indeed, she is quite the splendid word picture artiste, Nigel agreed. We need to first put a dab of molasses on this gatepost and then promise Bill more sweet stump sucking on the far fence post, Liz explained. Max looked at Ms. P's tail. Ms. P, do you want to do the molasses painting honors? Do goats stink? Ms. P said with a wink to Max, dipping her tail in the molasses and brushing some on the gatepost. Aye, of course they do, lass, Max answered. Except for Gilliman, that is. That's what she meant, old boy, meaning yes, she would, Nigel quipped. I shall ride Max to the far post and apply the molasses there. Bon, expect Bill shortly, Liz replied with a coy grin. Ms. P. walked into the barn to get Bill, while Liz sat on the gate, ready to lift the latch. Max and Nigel trotted off to prepare the other fence post. I know you're going to love this sweet post, Bill. Ms. P. said, leading the horse to the fence post. Just give that gate post a lick. Bill did as instructed, and his eyes widened with delight. Yummy post! He drooled and licked and chewed until all the molasses was gone. Liz and Ms. P. shared a knowing grin. I gotta get more of that sweet stuff, Bill exclaimed, licking the gate. Do you see the small black dog in the distance? Liz asked him. If you simply use your nose to lift the gate latch like so, there is a post covered with this sweet stuff near the black dog. She proceeded to show Bill how to lift the latch. Voila! Bill licked his lips and gazed over to the fence post Max and Nigel had prepared with molasses. That's easy! He whinnied with excitement and proceeded to gallop out of the gate toward the sticky sweet post. You can lead a horse to molasses, Miss P drawled sarcastically, but he'll chew it all on his own. <laughs> a day is lost if one has not left, Liz observed with a giggle, climbing onto Miss P's back. Shall we be going, mon ami? Just then, Jack Poindexter came walking toward the barn, seeing what had happened with Bill. He started running in Bill's direction, shouting, that crazy stump sucker! Time to beeline it to Hanover Tavern, neighed Miss P. With that, she galloped out of the gate. Patrick bit into an apple as he sat outside reading on the front porch of Hanover Tavern. He was holding the apple in his mouth and turning the page when he heard the clip-clop of an approaching horse. 
he looked up to see Ms. P heading his way. Liz had jumped off before they got within view. Patrick tucked the book under his arm and walked down the steps with a puzzled expression. Ms. P walked right up and stopped in front of Patrick, snorting a hello and sniffing the apple. Ms. P, uh, what are you doing here? Patrick wondered, looking around the horse for signs of Jack Poindexter. Get used to seeing me at your doorstep, Patrick, Miss P neighed. Did you run off? Patrick asked, patting the horse on her cheek. I better get you back home. Miss P reached down for the apple and Patrick chuckled. All right, you can have the apple, and then I'll take you back home. There you are, came Jack Poindexter's voice. He was riding Bill, who still licked his chops from the molasses smeared around his lips. Hi, Mr. Poindexter. Miss P just showed up here by herself. Did she get out of the gate? Patrick asked. Yes, Miss P and this stump sucker Bill both got out, Jack explained. Although, why she came here, I have no idea. Well, here she is, Patrick said, handing the reins to Jack. Sorry for the trouble, Pat, Jack said. Thanks for getting my filly. Oh, no trouble at all. Patrick assured him, and she just had an apple, so you know. <laughs> Maybe that's why she showed up at your doorstep, Jack said with a chuckle. He noticed the book under Patrick's arm and pointed. What are you reading there? Patrick held up his book and smiled. I've decided to study law, Mr. Poindexter. I've been reading this winter and plan to go to Williamsburg for my law license this spring. Jack raised his eyebrows. Well, I think you've settled on a fine path, Patrick. He leaned over with a grin. Has the stop been worth it? Patrick nodded. Yes, sir, it has. It's helped me to figure things out. Glad to hear it. And keep up the good work, Jack said. We'll be going now. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, and see you later, Mr. Poindexter, Patrick called. Bye, Miss P. Not for long. Miss P whinnied. Liz came walking by with her tail in the air and looked up at Miss P. Bravo, mon ami. We'll do this again in a couple of days, no? Looking forward to it, Liz, Miss P answered with a wink. March 31st, 1760. Patrick sat in the courtroom of Hanover Courthouse, gazing over at the images of the distant monarchs, proud to be a British subject and to live under the noble rule of British law. Liberty was a fundamental right for British citizens, as was the due process of law. Hanover County was founded and named for King George I of Great Britain, who was also the electorate of Hanover, his birthplace in Germany. As the namesake county of the British sovereign, Hanover Courthouse proudly displayed portraits of King George I and King George II, copies of royal paintings made by some emerging American colonial painter. Patrick watched his lawyer friend John Lewis examining a witness for a case, taking note of every detail and manner of procedure. Every legal document was read aloud for all to hear, so even the illiterate could understand and respond appropriately to the proceedings of the law with witnesses present. But Patrick equally studied the jurors and their nonverbal behavior, watching their emotional responses to the lawyer's arguments. John Henry was the judge presiding over the court today. Patrick sat in back and watched his father rule in favor of John Lewis's client, 
I wonder how Father would handle me as one of his courtroom attorneys. Patrick stood and made his way to the door of the courthouse to wait outside for John Lewis, who had prepared a certificate of recommendation signed by all the justices serving Hanover Courthouse. Patrick would need to present this certificate to the four men in Williamsburg who were the chosen examiners for the colony of Virginia, George Wythe, Robert Carter Nicholas, John Randolph, and his brother Peyton Randolph. Such a recommendation would show that Patrick was a valid candidate worth taking the valuable time of the most distinguished lawyers in Virginia. Congratulations, John. You were excellent in there, Patrick told him, pointing back to the courthouse. Thank you, Pat. I hope you were able to glean an insight or two to apply to your study, John Lewis replied. He reached into his satchel and pulled out the promised certificate. He handed it to Patrick. When you go to see the examiners, present this certificate. Remember, you don't have to face all four men at once, and you only need two of them to sign your law license. Patrick took the certificate in hand. I'm grateful, John. Whom would you recommend I see first? Definitely go to see George Wythe first, and use my personal connections to open your conversation, John answered. Give him my regards and tell him of our friendship. Remember, Wythe started his law practice as the younger partner to my father, and he married my sister Anne. God rest her soul. When Anne died in childbirth, he later remarried and moved to Williamsburg, but our family history will open the door for you. Wythe was also self-taught, just as you are, even though he did have an apprenticeship. He will likely give you the most sympathetic ear. That sounds like a solid plan. Thank you for your recommendations and your help, Patrick said. Anything else I should know? Besides the full scope of the law, John teased, drawing a pained expression from Patrick, who still knew very little. You have the gift of persuasion, so use it to win your case for being admitted to the bar, even though you haven't been formally trained or served as an apprentice. And since you've never been to a big city like Williamsburg before, you should at least know the law when it comes to riding horses in town. There is a law for riding in cities? Patrick asked realizing how little specific law he truly knew. John Lewis nodded. Those who are caught riding a horse or driving a carriage faster than a man can walk are fined a day's wages of five shillings. Those unable to pay the fine are given ten lashes at the whipping post. Patrick's eyes widened. You mean I could get fined for speeding through Williamsburg on a horse? John chuckled and put his hand on Patrick's shoulder. I, so be careful. He then looked intently into the young man's face and pointed to the certificate in Patrick's hand. You take that certificate to Williamsburg and bring back a signed law license. I know you can do it, Patrick. Thank you, my friend, Patrick replied. I'll do my best. Very well. Give my best to Mr. Wythe, John replied. He nodded and touched his hat before turning to walk away. Godspeed. But no speeding in Williamsburg. I can guarantee that, Patrick called after him. Then, muttering under his breath, he added, I don't know if I'll even make it to Williamsburg on my old horse. I'll likely enter the city on foot. As Patrick started walking across the street to Hanover Tavern, he saw Jack Poindexter slowly riding Bill toward him. He waved, and Jack pointed to the front of the tavern, 
There stood Ms. P., once again escaped from his farm. Patrick shook his head and hurried over to grab the wayward horse's reins. "'Good day, Mr. Poindexter. Here she is again,' Patrick exclaimed. "'How many times does that make now?' Seven, Jack said as he got down off his horse. Liz sat on the front porch, grinning, her tail curling slowly up and down. Uh, "'But of course it does.' Gilliman's words echoed in Patrick's mind. Seven means complete. I'm sorry about this, Mr. Poindexter. I'll stop feeding her apples if that will help. He reached out to hand the reins to Jack. Jack crossed his arms and cocked his head to the side with a grin. I'm afraid that won't do, Patrick. What kind of horse owner would I be to deprive Miss P. of her favorite Henry apples? He took a step forward and pushed Patrick's outstretched hand, holding the reins, back toward his chest. Besides, it is clear she wants to be here. I think Miss P is sweet on you. Sir? Patrick asked, puzzled. Jack smiled. I'm giving Miss P to you, Patrick. Patrick shot a quick glance at the beautiful black mare. His jaw dropped, and he looked at Jack in disbelief. But, sir... You've given to everyone else who has struggled all these years, Jack insisted, interrupting the young man with an upraised hand. It's your turn to receive, Patrick. You need a good horse if you're going to go get that law license in Williamsburg. He put his hand on Ms. P's shoulder and softly stroked her. I know you'll take good care of my filly. You've always been sweet on Ms. P, too. Thank you, Mr. Poindexter. I, I don't know what to say, stammered Patrick with a broad smile, overwhelmed with gratitude. Say you'll be my lawyer if I ever need one, Jack teased with a wink. Patrick's emotion caught in his throat. He smiled broadly and laughed with joy. I give you my word, sir. Done, Jack agreed, shaking Patrick's hand. He turned and climbed back into Bill's saddle. He leaned over with a grin and pointed to the young man. Now, if Ms. P. turns back up at my farm, then that will be your affair. Understood. Thank you again, Mr. Poindexter. I'll be forever in your debt, stated Patrick with a hand raised in farewell. Jack turned, lifted his hand, and trotted off back to his farm. Patrick put his hand on Ms. P.'s cheek and gently stroked her long nose. He looked at the tiny white star between her eyes and smiled. Well, Miss P., I hope you'll be happy with me. Let's go get you an apple. As he led her around back to the barn behind the tavern, he smiled and then asked, Would you like to ride to Williamsburg tomorrow? Miss P. caught Liz's eye, smiled, and neighed. Do goats stay? <laughs> Miss P, she is so funny, and uh, apparently generous too, no? Aye, announcer lad, where be our presents then? Now, now, patience, Max. First, we need to go to the newsroom and get another edition of... Nigel's News Nuggets. Greetings, Nigel P. Monaco here, reporting on horsepower, and not the kind that is measured by the physics that propel our motor cars, but actual horsepower. 
You see, these days, when contemplating a trip to the grocery store, for most of us, it's just jot down a quick list, jump in the driver's seat, engage the ignition, and take advantage of up to several hundred horsepower, and in ten minutes you're surrounded by a veritable cornucopia of prepackaged edibles at your local grocer. But this was not so in the eighteenth century. Your vehicle consisted of, uh, uh, well, one horsepower. In Patrick Henry's case, we're talking about Ms. P., Patrick's trip from Hanover to Williamsburg by way of this powerful young mare would cover roughly 50 miles. Now, these days, on a major thoroughfare, this could be accomplished in less than one hour, whereas the best of horses would have been hard-pressed to make the trip in a single day, and even if the horse were capable of doing so, she would be entirely spent and would need a full day just to recuperate. As we shall see in next week's installment, it was far more prudent for Patrick and Ms. P. to make the journey a two-day trip. Twenty-five miles in one day is plenty for any horse. Now, imagine if you had to walk the trip yourself. Now, as a mouse, while I can travel at seven to eight miles per hour, if uh, properly motivated, uh, I rarely go more than thirty feet from home. Thus, I could accomplish this fifty-mile trip in approximately seven hours, However, I'd have to spread it over roughly twelve years. Hardly worth my time, even to attain a license to practice law, like our Patrick. So, hats off to Ms. P. and all the glorious steeds who were once our greatest mode of transportation. For Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco, reporting. Mosey, now that was fascinating stuff. Nigel, that is utterly brilliant. Ah, and welcome, Miss Ginny. Thanks, Max. Well, it looks like it's time for Ginny's Corner. Boy, now I don't think I could run for 50 miles. I'd have to recharge my batteries. How about you, Miss Ginny? Recharging my batteries. Sometimes they run a little low. Do y'all ever feel that? Do y'all ever get tired and run down and just depleted creatively and you got nothing? Oui, je comprends. Right, you have a writing assignment. You're supposed to be all creative and fun, and you got nothing. Indeed, quite so. <laughs> you look at a blank piece of paper with a pencil on it, and it just, you have nothing. And sometimes that happens to me when I'm tired. These books, they take a lot out of me. They take a lot out of me mentally. I have to read hundreds of books to write them. I have to take all of that information and put it in the right order and decide what I'm going to include and what I'm going to delete. And that takes a lot of time and mental energy and clarity and understanding. You know, I'm doing a lot of military writing now in these revolution books. And that's hard. And that's that's a new genre for me. It, it stretches me. And so I have to talk to my experts who know more about it than I do and can give me the advice I need. But sometimes I just get really mentally fatigued with it. So how do I recharge my batteries? Sometimes I just leave my office and I take Jock and I go for a walk. There's something about getting outside and clearing your head, clearing your mind that will regenerate your mind, but also your body. Getting some exercise really helps to kind of recharge and refocus. Sometimes I just stop for the day and I go do something fun. If I'm stuck, if I'm too tired, I stop trying to force it. I have to get a good night's sleep. That really recharges my batteries. And then sometimes I just need to take a riding break for more than a day or two in a week. 
and go out to Colorado and walk around snowshoeing 20 miles. <laughs> and I come back having been away from my work for a while, and the ideas are just exploding. Because one thing you got to know about authors, technically, we might leave the computer and not be writing, but honestly, we never stop. The mind never stops. And so I'm constantly writing and processing and plotting and, and thinking. So sometimes just getting away from the computer, from the research, and just letting my brain and my spirit rest and enjoy beauty and nature and good physical exercise is plenty to recharge my batteries. But I want to tell you also, one way I recharge my batteries is nothing I do, but it's what you do. I cannot tell you what hearing from you means to me. When I get an email, by the way, you can always email me at jenny at epicorderofthe7.com. I get notes of encouragement just when I need it. God always seems to know when I am tired and I need that boost. And it's, it's like I always say that it's like fueling my pen. It's a shot in the arm that you guys give me of encouragement and it keeps me going. I've had kids send me artwork or families pray over me, send me pictures of them reading the books or artwork that they've drawn. And guys, I got to tell you, that is supercharge right there when you do that. So thank you for doing that for me. And always know that I love to hear from you because if I ever need a charge, I know where to get it from you. Ah, Tribe and Miss Jenny, it just goes to show we all need some encouragement once in a while and it helps to recharge our batteries, no? It sure does. Thanks, Les. No. How about them gifts? Okay. Well, I have envelopes for each of you from Ms. P in honor of today's chapter. So why don't I read them to you as Ms. P would read them, okay? Okay. <clears throat> uh, not being one to beat around the bush, I'll just get right to the point. As y'all know, my fashion sense is right up there with my horse sense. So I'm helping y'all with your formal attire. Uh, first, a little old tuxedo for a dashing little old mouse. I say, and it's just my size. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Mickey. Ah, I say, instead of just being a Monaco, I shall have to visit Monaco as an international spy. Okay, dial it back there, 007. Uh, what you got for me, lad? Uh, well, for a classic Scotty like yourself, no formal attire would be complete without... Kilts! Look, we doggy-sized kilts! In me family tartan, no less. Oh, and look, Max, it comes with a little beret. It may be a beret in Frenchy talk, but in Scotland, that'd be a tam. Oh, pardon. Well, I wonder what uh, formal attire she may have for me. After all, I am already dressed in basic black. <clears throat> uh, Lizette Brion, you just need a little more brilliance, because it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that bling. <gasps> a string of pearls! Magnifique! Uh, oh! And a pair of long silk gloves with little holes for my claws. Uh, but remember, Liz, just because you got claws doesn't mean you got to use them. Uh, oui, madame. Uh, what about you, monsieur? Oh, well, she just got me, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, she just got me a little black vest and a roughly white shirt. I say, <laughs> as smashing as we all look, why the need for all this formal attire? Well, there is one more envelope here. <clears throat> uh, 
Y'all are hereby cordially invited to Miss P's annual barnyard ball, Williamsburg, Virginia, transportation courtesy of the Iamosphere. I say, good show. Oh, and uh, speaking of good show, uh, we'd better wrap things up here. What? Oh, and I say, while I'm at it, announcer chap, that was a very fine Miss P impression you did there. We oui, uh, sometime you should do your Liz impression. Uh, I think you just did then, Les. Uh, well, can you do me too, lad? Well, now that was pretty close, don't you think? Okay, now do Mosey. Okay. I say, that takes the biscuit, old boy, indeed. Eh, uh, that were close. Eh, uh, not bad, uh, but we have to get ready for the fancy ball. Indeed, and we'll tell you all about it on our next podcast. Well then, I say, Max, old boy, uh, mash the button. See, now that were a better mercy that time. We oui, that sounded a lot closer to him. But what about mine? Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Hauza! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.